1: The Chumba life is for
0: everybody, so go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba.
1: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five-conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit IdeasRoadShow.com for more details. If I had my way, Joanna Haig would be a household name, because in a world conspicuously polarized into strident climate change deniers and often equally strident climate change activists, the first thing that strikes you about Jo is that she's so remarkably genial and likable. The next thing that you quickly appreciate is that she's a top notch expert in both atmospheric science and related public policy, a world leading scholar and longtime co director of Imperial College's Grantham Institute. But the third, and perhaps even most significant thing that comes across when talking to Joe is that she's what I would call a proper scientist, because notwithstanding the highly politicized nature of her research these days, it's overwhelmingly obvious that the reason she's become the internationally recognized scientist that she is, is simply because she loves trying to understand the weather, which in turn makes her conclusions vastly more compelling. I'd like to talk a little bit about your beginnings, your personal research beginnings, and how you got into science and how you got into atmospheric science uh, in particular. So how did that all begin for you?
1: Well, when I was at school, I was quite good at maths and science. I didn't have any particular um, leanings in any direction, but uh, had a really brilliant physics teacher, really inspirational physics teacher. And so when I applied to university, I applied to do physics. And I had a very pleasant three years being an undergraduate physicist, had a lovely social life. But at the end of it, I thought physics was pretty dull. Um, And so I had a gap year um, with my now husband, went round the uh, Middle Eastern Medieval sites.
0: Where, where did you go in particular?
1: Uh, Turkey and Syria. We tried to go further round, but um, we didn't quite make it around the Mediterranean that way. We had to go around the other way. That's a long story. <laughs> um, and um, while I was travelling, in any way, um, I decided I liked meteorology. I'd always liked meteorology. When I was a girl guide, I did the weather badge and I uh, made my own weather gauge and you know all the rest of it. Very you know primitive, but. I liked the environment. So um, I applied to do um, a master's degree in meteorology and loved it. And so after that I thought, what can I do next? I want to stay in the field. So I applied to do a doctorate in uh, atmospheric physics, uh, which was the driest sort of physics you can imagine, but that didn't matter because when you know why you're doing it and you're sort of inspired and interested, it makes all the difference. And I've sort of been doing that sort of thing ever
0: since. So let me back up a little bit. Uh, You mentioned your inspirational and outstanding Mm. high school teacher. Mm. Uh, Was this a a he or a she?
1: It was a he. Now that's funny because um, it was in an all-girls school and um, uh, the science teaching was actually very good across the board. He was the first male teacher in the school, this is back in the 1960s or 70s. Um, Poor guy, young teacher, coming into the city giggling thirteen-year-old girls, you can imagine, Um, but he was really inspired and he taught physics in a way that we hadn't had before and the lab experiments were no longer sort of smelly and boring and dirty, they were really interesting
0: (laughs) Um, so it was more the experimental side, or was it also the, the no, theoretical no, no, structure no, the or the whole, combination the whole
1: structure and, and explaining why you do things and what it means, not just you know f equals m a you know what was right. it actually meant in, in the real world?
0: I would imagine he would have inspired quite a few people to, to he go
1: did they had, I mean this is an all girls uh, school, um, as I say, uh, state school never had a very very big uh, physics class doing a level He always had a few going up to what was O level in those days, age 16, because um, if you wanted to do medicine, and many of the girls wanted to do medicine, you had to have physics O level. So there was a physics up to that stage, but very few people took physics A level. And in my year, I think there were six, which was you know quite amazing.
0: Right, record-setting, presumably. Mm. Um, so my second question is, uh, well, I have a bit of a disconnect with respect to, re- uh, you liked the weather and you liked meteorology and so forth and you were inspired by physics but it seems as if when you were an undergraduate um, you didn't put that together somehow no. from, from your story. So why why was that in retrospect? It's not an accusation. No, 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 no. it's not an accusation at
1: all and I'm, I'm trying to think of the answer. The answer is um, twofold. Um, one is that the course was quite dry uh, and not, um, you know there weren't many options but actually looking back on it um, I was immature, having a great time, not concentrating, you know, and didn't get as much out of it as I should have done.
0: Okay, because I I have, uh, obviously, we're talking about your history and you were there, so I don't pretend to know better, but I have another theory, Uh, (laughs) or or at least I have some smatterings of a potential direction, because when I was an undergraduate, um, which was probably not all that Different in terms of time uh, than when you were an undergraduate. Um, atmospheric science and meteorology and climate science didn't really have a great reputation. It wasn't something that, uh, by and large, the best and the brightest were no. naturally drawn to. Yeah. Um, and so Insofar as one is thinking about one's future academically, or uh, there was all this sexy stuff about the grand underlying laws of the yeah. universe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, and that might have been some, to some degree, a deterrent, or at least uh, not not an attractive force. Was that does that?
1: Well, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really offered. I mean, you're absolutely right, um, but I couldn't have been... I mean, it wasn't offered. The physics course was very narrow. I mean, you know, you had very little choice of what you did, and it was quantum mechanics or solid state, you know. It's, yeah. um, but it's true um, that uh, atmospheric physics has been, and still is to a certain extent, a poor relation. And there's a sort of, there's a sort of pecking order in physics, and the more applied you get slightly lower your viewed it's um, <laughs> still true uh Today. Hmm. Actually you better not put that in because people in Imperial College will <laughs> Oh
0: goodness, some of the people at Imperial College are. I mean we're talking about the string theorists yeah. and so right? I mean they're, they're no they're the, terrible. The we string, can not put that in. The we'll string put it, I'll say, I'll say <laughs> they're terrible.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a certain pecking order in physics, uh, in which the extremely theoretical people are perceived to be, perhaps from the outside, you know, higher ranking order than the the more applied people. Um, uh, the only thing we've got going for us is that we tend to um, earn more grants, of course, so, and be much um, more
0: socially relevant, and all the rest of that,
1: and definitely more socially relevant. Uh, mm. So that you know, there's pros and cons, and it suits some people to do one thing, and it suits other people to do the other, which is probably rather healthy.
0: Hmm, that's very tactical. You can tell that you've been chair of department. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I learned a lot by being chair of department, yeah. actually. I mean, no interesting things about science is I didn't know before. So mm. yeah, such as what? Well, you know what they do in plasma physics and Mm -hmm. and fusion research and uh, all the sort of things about um, semiconductors. You know, I've I've been quite outside of that sort of thing.
0: Right. As I get older, I realize um, the interesting things that are done in in such a wide spectrum of different fields. When I was younger, I, I, I guess I Drank the Kool-Aid or whatever, and I had this sense that oh no, only this and this are the interesting things, and everything else is just dirty yes. and applied and un- you know uninteresting and derivative and you know all these other words that one would throw yes. around. Um, and the older I get, the more I realize how incredibly fascinating all sorts of different areas. Yeah, it's can amazing, be. isn't
1: it? The more you know about, you yeah. know, the more amazed you get. And something very healthy about science nowadays is that I think it's generally understood that doing multidisciplinary or, or interdisciplinary work is actually useful yeah. and to be encouraged. Uh, whereas in, in the old days it, you definitely you know, fell between, you, know, you either went that direction or that direction, you couldn't go right. across.
0: Right. Uh, not too long ago I had a conversation with uh, Paul Steinhardt, I don't know if you, if you know him, um, and he's a, he's a Princeton cosmologist who, who also has done seminal work in quasicrystals, oh. so I didn't know anything about, not that I know a great deal about cosmology, but relatively speaking, I know a lot compared to quasicrystals, which just tells you how little I do about quasicrystals. And so here's this guy who's one of the uh, primary agents of of the inflationary model of cosmology, talking about his experience with quasicrystals and how it began from this fascination from looking. Um, at, well, at rocks, at patterns, mathematical patterns. That part I can understand, but rocks, I mean, to me, when I was younger, there would be nothing more boring than rocks. I I mean, that was the most boring thing in the world. I couldn't, and and rocks, and then spectroscopy. So to me, those are the two twin pillars of boredom. I couldn't imagine anything. And from there, it's just unbelievable where the story goes. It's the most fascinating story I've ever heard in my life. It's remarkable, and it just goes to show you how you can gain entrance yeah. to all sorts of fascinating things. If you, I guess that's what maturity is all about, I'm not sure, but...
1: you're uh, uh, right.
0: <laughs> before I get into your research, I, I, I want to get to this uh, meteorological epiphany, as it were, because mm-hmm. it's, it's still a bit confusing to me so this is my understanding of what happened you obviously had some proclivity towards the mathematical sciences you're inspired by a great teacher you go to oxford you have a good time you go through some relatively dry as dust courses you meet your future husband you travel around um, the middle east and you look at historical sites and that and then all of a sudden you become rekindled with enthusiasm for the weather. So that, to me, there's a bit of a disconnect. I get, I get kind of everything up until there, but what, what happened? Did you go out in, in one beautiful night in Syria and say, well, the weather,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the weather's what I, I want. Mean, almost, except, I mean, the interest in weather had, had always been there and had, had, had never gone away, but I did, there was some amazing meteorological phenomena that, that okay. I, I saw while I was traveling. So, so what, sort, what sort, of, have... sort of Solidified. Um, enormous thunderstorms yeah. um, in the Mediterranean. Fantastic sunrises and sunsets when we were traveling in
0: Morocco and was your was your future husband was he encouraged? Did you talk to him? were you gushing about the weather how 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 did that play out when you were yeah
1: there? you know we talk to each other, he goes on about history and I go on about the weather. <laughs> We sit and have dinner in between.
0: Does it ever combine itself? Do you ever talk about the historical patterns of the weather or what the weather was like in the Middle Ages? or anything?
1: Well, we almost applied for a job share once. It was an advertised position in um, historical meteorological records and you had to understand the weather and you had to be able to read Latin. Uh, and we thought, oh good, we can do this. Um, but then we thought, yeah oh, we'd only get one salary between us, so that wasn't going to work very well.
0: How, how, how many times does that happen, I wonder, that you have to understand the weather and be able to, to understand Latin, at they're saying the pro- it's probably not. All are, I common. mean,
1: there are people who go in for historical climatology, you know, there's quite an interesting you know branch of that science where they have to look at old documents. There's a, a lovely paper written a few years ago by somebody who'd been looking at ships going across um, the Atlantic in the tropics Mm. and they tend to go further, I forget which time of year it is or whatever it is, but they go further north and further south depending on the wind um, directions and they've got records of how long it took to go and so by getting all these um, records together they were beginning to understand about the wind and how it changed seasonally and from year to year and they've Mm. collected all this and had to read it in old Spanish (laughs)
0: <laughs> also, this was during the Spanish, I guess, the Spanish Empire. Yeah, yeah like
1: the it was sort of 16-something, I think. Right. Yeah.
0: One last thing before we get into your research, and this, again, unless you have anything to add. So you mentioned going to an all-girls school, and perhaps it's too premature to talk about this, but it does seem reasonable to bring it up and how this uh, inspirational teacher was the first of, presumably, a line of subsequent male teachers going into this all-girl enclave. (laughs) There are, of course, gender issues in the mathematical sciences, um, and I know you've spoken about those, and uh, are things moving in the right direction, at least? Are, are, are Are we entering a stage when more and more, young women are considering careers in the mathematical sciences compared to the way it was when you were in school, or, or had things changed at all?
1: Yes, I think in schools, most schools now, the opportunities are available, and certainly girls going to do maths degrees, I think it's, it's almost 50-50 now, so really? mass sort of, you know, straight maths. Physics and engineering is much, much worse, um, so I think you know at Imperial we got up to 25% female Intake at one stage, and we thought we were doing really, really well, and we, we work quite hard at it. We, uh, you know, have open days for girls. We try and, you know, put female role models. We invite girls' to schools particularly to come to events, and um, I think it goes back much further. I think you're too late if you start sort of talking to girls at age seventeen. You've missed you've missed it basically, or even sixteen, and it's much much earlier than that that the effort needs to be made, so that when they're sort of getting deciding whether they actually like subjects or not, um, or whether it's for them, or whether they can see themselves being in that mode, it has to come much earlier, in a more formative period, possibly even back to primary school. I think primary schools are probably okay
0: still. So why is there such a disparity? Uh, I'm surprised and gratified to hear that in pure maths it's, as you say, 50-50. Um, and my understanding is that in other fields such as medicine or law it's at least 50-50 if not actually a a higher percentage of women Um, but why in physics and engineering do you you think there's this disparity still?
1: Uh, There's lots of reasons suggested, I mean I don't know the answer to that but um, one reason is that it's just seemed to be difficult and perhaps because it's not very well taught in schools still, um, um, that girls think, oh I don't really, don't see that uh, less self-confident than the boys. And there's a certain sort of, you know, boys do engineering, still go on, get their hands all dirty and, you know, do the mechanics, fiddle around with electronics. And the girls are okay with the maths and computing, but when it gets to the dirty stuff, they just don't do it so much.
0: I see. So so physics and engineering in terms of, certainly engineering, but even, even physics in terms of the real world as opposed to games and puzzles and… and uh, uh, games pure... and puzzles,
1: yes, but you have to distinguish between the real world when it's sort of dirty engineering and the real world where it's actually trying to do good in the real world or uh, environmental science or biological sciences or you know, the real world that actually we can relate to. Yeah. I think that's quite why I like meteorology because you can do the clever physics but actually you can look out the window and see it happening, so it's, it's sort of there.
0: Are there disparities uh, within physics? So, uh, uh, are there more women within environmental science than the? Yes, definitely.
1: So, there are certain areas of physics which have very, very few women at all. I'm not going to say what they are because it relates to imperial college again. They're awful. There's certain (laughs) certain areas. i was going to hit the string theorists
0: again. We can't do that. We can't. can't,
1: can't There's some. There's not. There's not so many women in, in string theory and theoretical physics, but there's a certain representation, whereas in some areas of physics, right. there's almost none. In our um, space and atmospheric group, it's pretty much fifty percent. And we're never quite sure whether the, um, the girls are choosing us or we're choosing the girls, but I think it's the girls that are choosing us because they like the subject.
0: And is that fairly common throughout the field? Is it is it Imperial College an anomaly at all, or is it no. is that fairly standard?
1: No. If we go to um, conferences nowadays, atmospheric and meteorological conferences, is a very good female
0: contingent. So as promised, I'd like to tack to your research, and of course there's an awful lot of it, Um, but maybe we could just begin with uh, summarizing what I think a layperson would be curious to know, which is for you as a specialist who studies the effect of of the sun and solar variability on climate, um, why should we care about that? That's the obvious question, I suppose.
1: So why should you care, or why do I care? They're not entirely the same.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we start with why you should why you care?
1: So I started off from um, having done. Um, a doctorate in uh, the physics of the stratosphere and indeed the chemistry of ozone in the ozone layer, um, which was before the ozone hole was discovered. So we were doing, you know, gas phase chemistry and what would happen to the ozone. And um, what I was doing was looking at how the um, ozone change in response to chlorofluorocarbons would respond um, when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So the carbon dioxide gives you sort of climate change and temperature change and the carbons give you a sort of chemical change and what I was doing was um, putting the two together and to see what happens and it's quite an interesting scientific question which does involve some radiative transfer calculations. So I was doing the radiative transfer and part of that is doing solar radiation and I just got interested in the physics of the solar radiation in the atmosphere so I came at it from that perspective and then in the I can't remember what year it was now, probably 1990 something. There was a paper published. It had one graph which was the temperature of the northern hemisphere and a measure of solar variability. It wasn't actually solar irradiance; it was something to do with the sunspot cycles. But these two graphs, the lines just overlaid each other, and it was in science, uh, you know, very reputable journal. I thought, "Woo, you know, that's interesting. Um, There must be something in that." Right. Um, And, of course, it was being used by, uh, uh, this was at the beginnings of sort of more work going on on climate change, and there was people saying it was all due to the sun. And if you looked at this graph, you could think, well, it's all due to the sun. So I thought, that's interesting physics, I'll have a look at that.
0: That's highly suggestive, as you're saying, um, of common causes, common mechanisms. Um, so presumably this was picked up by other people, I would have thought, at the time, or not yes. so much? Uh,
1: uh, yes, I mean, it was, lots of people got interested in it. Um, after a, quite a short time, it became clear that the people who had uh, analysed the data had pretty much... Cheat is too strong a word, but um, their analysis technique left a little bit to be desired, put it like that. And in fact, if you do it properly...
0: Um, the solar thing doesn't go up at the same rate as the temperature thing, so actually it was flawed. So what was their agenda, just out of curiosity, do you think? I mean, of course you don't know, but presumably they, they had some motivation to display these things as if they were as yes. more strongly correlated than they actually were.
1: Yes. Um, th- it could have been a mistake. Okay. They were using a, um, a smoothing filter which was averaging over several solar cycles. So a solar cycle is 11 years. If you average over um, five Soda cycles, you need 55 years of data, so you need you know, 27 years either side of the point you're at. So if you go anything further than 27 years ago, you need to predict into the future what the data is, and they'd predicted up till nearly 1990, whatever it was, the date of the paper, mm-hmm. and they'd used um, a sort of algorithm that meant that once they started going around the corner, they'd carry on going around the corner. So it was a sort of self-fulfilling um, prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't possibly say whether they'd done that on purpose or just as a mistake. I hope it was a mistake. It was that the, that paper was used, though, quite shamelessly by people who wanted to say that climate change was due to the sun for many years subsequently. It's perhaps only stopped relatively recently, um, so it had a big impact.
0: Right. So getting back to this distinction between uh, why you would be interested or why you were interested and why yeah. a member of the general public no. or, or someone else would be interested. Yeah. You very cogently pointed out what drew you into the field. Yeah. Um, if I'm, as I, as I am, as it happens, somebody who doesn't pretend to know a great deal about this topic and you start thinking, oh, well, maybe it's the case that, um, that any climate change that we see around us is a result of solar activity, or something to do with the mm. something to do with the sun. Um, it, it it seems like an obvious thing to be studying to even whatever whatever your findings are to at least uh, to at least a rule that out if it turns yes. out not to be the case yeah. presumably, and b understand uh, what exactly these factors are in terms of the sun's influence on climate change so that you can try to get a handle on how it might in fact impact any other factors yes, that are going yes. on. Is that a fair exactly, summary?
1: Exactly that. And first of all, I'd like to <laughs> sort of correct myself. I didn't mean to sort of say us and them, like me, I have science <laughs> motivations and the general public, they can have their sort of you know, foolish, you know, I didn't mean to imply that at all. I just right. meant that I had a way into the subject. No, of and now I can see that there's a much broader reason Doing it, and as you so clearly explain, um, it's to do with you have to understand natural factors that influence the climate, so that you can uh, dis- disentangle those from other factors which may be due to human activity. So, um, how much is the sun doing or isn't doing um, is very important to disting- distinguish that from carbon dioxide. Right. Also, um, volcanic eruptions. So, if you've got a huge volcanic eruption, you'll know, chuck a load of stuff up. The particles sit in the stratosphere for a couple of years. They reflect sunshine back to space, and that cools the climate. So, you know, we want to know how much that's doing as right. well. Right. And there's other natural, less on the times in terms of forcing, but more just sort of natural variability. So you'll be aware of the El Nino, ENSO sort of activity. And there's other natural vari- variations in the climate that you need to understand, so that you can be very clear about what human activity is doing and what it isn't doing.
0: Right. Well, one of the things um, that I found uh, quite interesting in the, in the, the briefing paper that you, you gave me from your institute, or oh, well, you can give it to me. I downloaded it. You referred me. To it. <laughs> you might as well have given it to me. Um, is you very neatly break things up into, even, even if one is going to look at the sun's influence on climate, or the sun's influence just on the earth, broadly defined, um, into factors that have to do with, uh, with the sun itself and any variability that's coming from the sun itself due to yeah. stellar processes and what have you, and factors that have to do with the earth and its orbit and the earth and its tilt and the earth and doing all of these yes. different types of things, which uh, I guess some of, the, some of which I had recognized in principle were um, would, would be going on. But I think it's an important distinction for somebody who doesn't know anything about this to realize that even if one is just going to consider um, changes of of the amount of radiation that one gets from the sun, it's not all about the sun itself. I'd like to get to that because I have some questions about that too. but there are all these things that are happening with respect to the Earth and its orbit and its tilt and all the rest of that that have nothing to do with the sun, that that, that would change the amount of radiation that would hit the Earth, yes. even if the sun's uh, radiation was constant.
1: Yes, exactly that. And, and there is some misunderstanding even in, you know, among experts as to quite what you're studying when you're looking back in history to do with, with solar radiation and climate. And you have to be very clear you know, what it is you're actually using as your indicator of, of solar activity. So, um, you've you've expressed it very well. I mean, the climate is driven by energy from the sun, fundamentally, uh, and that's driving all the weather patterns and the winds and everything is due to energy coming from the sun. There's almost nothing coming from below, um, so that's it. So, we need to know what the sun's doing or how much energy is getting in from the sun in order to understand how climate works. And uh, the energy that comes in from the sun is determined by several factors. One is um, how much energy is coming out of the sun, and one is where the sun is in relation to the earth and the distance and the earth's tilt and position, etc., in relation to the sun. So we need to be
0: careful in distinguishing those different factors. So, so I have a couple of questions about this. Um, so if memory serves, so correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but if memory serves, there are th- three basic effects. Um, that are at play if one just considers the earth and how it's moving around and changing. So one is, the eccentricity of the orbit is changing a little bit, um, and I think, okay, fine, I've seen orbits change, and I can sort of say they're probably tidal forces and other planets and other things going on, and, and the moon and so forth. Then, So that's one factor. So presumably, as, uh, as the orbit becomes more or less elliptical, and this, the, the planet, rather the Earth, um, our planet, uh, as a result, moves closer or further away from the sun. Uh, obviously, the amount of radiation that you get is, is greater or lesser depending mm-hmm. on, on exactly that. that yeah. So, that I can kind of get, or at least wave my hands around and pretend <laughs> that I get. Um, then there's the fact that uh, the Earth is basically this spinning top with a particular axis. And as a result of that, um, like most spinning tops it will process so that's not terribly surprising to me but I, I i would imagine that would just wreak havoc with the seasons because the reason why we have seasons is as i understand nice. it because of this tilt and yeah. so if it yeah, goes yeah. over here then yeah, all of a sudden you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're upset so that that i can and that happens on some fifty thousand or 40 000, some long time scale yeah very okay. good yeah okay so that i that i get again at a very basic level but then um i read that the actual obliquity of the axis, the tilt of the axis changes. Yes. So I have two questions for that. So one is, what the heck is going on? How does that happen? Um, what, what are the factors even involved in that? So, I mean, again, I can wave my hands and say tidal force, but I, I, I just, that was, I know nothing about this, but that to me was, wow, I didn't know that, <laughs> that happened at all. <laughs> and then uh, maybe nobody knows, or maybe maybe it's really easy, but I don't know that. And then the second question is, how do we even know I want to get to the how do we know things later on, but how do we even know that that happened? Because there's so much variation. I, I, to to come up with a theory that oh we knew that the axis was actually 21 degrees and you know 20,000 years ago and 28 at I don't know whatever the numbers are, but I mean that seems um, mind-bogglingly complex to me. So those are my those are my two questions. What's going on and how do we know that that's the case?
1: So. Um What's going
0: on is all the gravitational pull from all the
1: different planets, um, okay. uh, in their time scales, okay. and how we know is largely based on uh, mathematical models. So that I'm not an expert on that at all, but um, there are people who put these many-body problems into various mathematical models and can actually predict each of these three parameters and what they do. Time.
0: So, so the basic idea would be, and, and I want to get to this in more detail, but presumably with these isotopes and all the rest of that stuff. However, they trace things. If they wouldn't have that third degree of freedom, this axis tilting, their models just wouldn't work. So they need they need that. They were forced to recognize that. Did, did someone come along? Um, Maybe you don't know the history of I, that. But to me, I don't.
1: I, I don't know properly what that is, but I imagine once it started, then. If you give it a starting point and then you put it into the mathematical equations, right. then it will evolve in the way that uh, is uh, predictable.
0: Okay. I guess maybe I just don't know. enough. Um, precession. I'm used to things processing. I'm used oh, to yes. orbits processing and I'm used to tops precessing, and I think okay, precession. I'm kind of used to. But the axis itself changing—that yeah. was a bit of a—that was a bit wonky to me. It
1: and was. it is important because, um, of course, if you've got an axis that isn't tilting. Yeah. Um, then um, you don't get the seasons and you get the same amount of radiation um, all the way uh, through the year. And um, I don't know whether you want to talk about ice ages and things, but...
0: um, Sure. I'm I'm happy to talk about ice ages.
1: (laughs) So um, one of the very clear things that comes out of the records of temperature is a um, sort of quasi 100,000 year up and down change in temperature. Uh, And we think that's due to changes in the eccentricity of the orbit.
0: So my sense from reading uh, these things was that there are are all these factors, these three main factors, the eccentricity of the orbit and the precession and the tilt. And these things happen with some fairly well-defined periodicity. And the periodicity is long. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like of the ten thousand years, something. I mean, they, yeah. they they know what they are. The
1: hundred thousand years for,
0: for the eccentricity. Yeah. Okay, and then the, and so there's hundred thousand for the eccentricity thereabouts, and then there's something like thirty or forty thousand yeah. for the other things, right? Yeah, that that's are right. Like, yeah. and they're all periodic. Yeah. So it, so, yeah. so my very hand wavy reading of this was okay. There are all these structural things that are happening if you just look at sort of the Newtonian dynamics of all this stuff that are that are happening. So therefore there would be a periodicity for them to also on a larger scale align and misalign in some particular way and that would presumably cause these massive climactic shifts like ice ages or something when they're all lined up in one particular way if you take a a really long time scale. Is it something like that?
1: Yeah exactly that. So this is is the thing about the ice ages. So um, if you have um, quite a big tilt um, then it takes some time for um, the ice to build up in winter and to melt in the summer, and it can be that if you've got a, um, a big tilt and a big eccentricity that it, there's not enough time for it to melt in the summer before you get to the next freezing, right. and that's when you get the build-up of an ice age. So it's a sort of combination of the tilt and the eccentricity of the orbit that's giving you the ice ages.
0: I see. So it's like the perfect storm for
1: a… Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, they're going on this sort of 100,000-year time scale.
0: timescale. Right. Um, so I, uh, I, I do definitely want to get into the details of how we know some of these things as well. Uh, and then, of course, the various mechanisms which come down the road. Um, but I want to move a little bit now to the sun itself. So we talked about um, very loosely the three different, um, I guess, earth-related or, or are
1: sort of geometrical right uh
0: due to the orbit and the the orientation and all the rest of that of what the earth is doing uh that effect on the on the solar radiation that it receives and then of course the sun itself is fluctuating Um, and you mentioned earlier the solar cycle Um, and i'd like to talk i'd like you to talk a little bit more about that and again i have some questions about this because i don't Pretend to really understand what's going on. But first, before we get to the questions, my understanding is that um, there is uh, a cyclical pattern in terms of the sun's activity of roughly 11 years or something like that, right? The solar cycle, which people have known about for a couple hundred years because it's yeah, linked to sunspots. that,
1: yeah. Yes.
0: And so People started noticing these things, what, in the 1700s, roughly?
1: Uh, they've known about it since ancient, the ancient Chinese mm-hmm. recorded observations of sunspots. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly that you can, you can see them if you look through clouds, it's much more easy to look with the naked eye. So they've been known about since ancient times. Wow. Um, but it's only since um, um, about the last 200 years or so. Is that right? It's only since the last 200 years or so that we've known about the 11-year sunspot cycle, um, but people recording the observations of sunspots much longer ago than that. So in the Paris Observatory, they've had very clear records of sunspot counting since sort of 1500 and something.
0: And they didn't notice a cycle. They didn't notice a pattern to it. Well, it it it, it comes and goes. So
1: um, there was a thing called the Morda Minimum, in which the sunspots hardly appeared at all. Um, and people have said, oh, perhaps it's because they just didn't notice them or they didn't write them down or something. But it's not the case. They knew that there were sunspots and they were looking for them and, and they weren't happening. Um, and then they just kept records over all that time. Then, um, and then about 200 years ago, I think, i better check that. Um, it was the Schwaber discovered this 11-year cycle in the, in the sunspots. Hmm. It's only very approximately 11 years. I mean if you plot the graph, it sort of looks rather clear. But actually, it varies between nine years yeah, and that. 13 years. And actually, the amplitude of the cycle varies a lot as well. You can get a small one and you can get a big one. So it's not quite as obvious as you might think if you were sitting with the data, you know, <laughs> on top of you.
0: Right. So by the amplitude of the cycle, you mean the the total number of actual sunspot detections. And so if I'm. Yeah. Uh, um, at the peak, there would be, well, how many would there be? If a, a, at the peak, a, a, a typical peak, how many, what, what are we talking about, how many? Well,
1: places? it depends how you count them, <laughs> and that's another, that's another <laughs> issue because, of course, they come in a range of sizes. Um, so now there's an official, in fact, it's just been revised, but there's an official way of counting sunspots, where you count individual big ones, then you count groups of them, and you multiply the number of groups by 10, and you add it to the number of individual ones, and that gives you the formal sunspot number sort of thing.
0: Okay. So there's, so, a, there's um, a canonical size of, of, of yes, what a, a yes. standard one is?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, that way it makes it more consistent. Um, so um, what was the question?
0: The is <laughs> how many, roughly? So what are we talking oh, um, about?
1: Yeah, a few hundred, yes, using that, that sort of measure. So, um,
0: so you may not know the answer to this, but the obvious question is, okay, something is happening cyclically in terms of these black spots on the sun. Or black or darkish, or I don't know how you would define. I would. Like, well,
1: that's an interesting question because actually they're not dark at all. They only look dark. I mean, they, there's lots of radiation coming out of them, right. but they just look dark because it's much brighter around the outside, right. and they're and they're recessed, so that the light doesn't escape so well. You actually. said there's
0: more UV stuff that's coming out. That didn't is not Ah,
1: yes. We're moving on now. Sorry, sorry,
0: sorry. No, no. But well, we're having a discussion. It's not, it's not as structured <laughs> yeah. as it should be. So let, let's not move on because yeah. I, I I have yeah. some other questions. But yeah. so so they're. They only look dark uh, relatively they're actually very, they're very, if you
1: you know if they if that was sitting there like just the sun'spot or the rest of the Sun wasn't there you, you know it'd still be bright
0: right mm. right um, but when you say there are uh, so then a couple of hundred of them at the at the top of the amplitude yeah right? this is what we said so what what is uh, are we looking at per year or are we looking at so what is that period that we' the hundred is in
1: so um, that would be an instantaneous number. Okay, And they come and oh, go.
0: So we yeah. could actually count so somebody could see that that at any given moment there oh, are 100 yes. of
1: these things. Oh yes. So what you do if you want to do sometime yeah. you get your telescope don't look through the telescope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Project it onto a piece of paper.
0: Yeah.
1: And you can see when there's sunspots around and you can see them and count them. 100 I mean, of them at a
0: mass. That's a that's Well,
1: it's, it's this formal sunspot number where you are counting yeah, yeah, little okay, groups of things. So lots so lots yes, and lots. yeah, lots,
0: yeah. Okay. Mm. So there's a there's a pattern to these things that's not regular, regular but approximately 11 years and as you say it's roughly 9 to 13 yeah. years but you can certainly see a periodicity to yes. these, these things. Um,
1: and then just to interrupt, as I say you get, you get weaker cycles and stronger cycles and the weaker cycles um, are also longer ones. So um, when we were talking earlier about that record of solar activity that had been used it was actually, what they used was the length of the solar cycle to indicate how how powerful the Sun was, so they'd used an inverse scale, so long solar cycle meant low solar power, and that was why they were having to use very long records Mm. to get any any measures.
0: So what's going on with these things, with these suns?
1: Uh, Well, now you see, you can ask me, and I'm not a solar physicist, I I only know in a most uh, hand-waving sort of a way, Um, but what happens is that there's little convection, so it's like we have convective clouds on Earth, but these are convections of magnetic storms, on the Sun. Um, And these effects sort of um, start at high latitudes and they they move, and there's a very complicated magnetic field line, sort of twisted around the Sun, and they sort of move inwards towards the equator of the Sun, and then the next lot starts at the high latitudes and moves in again. Um, And uh, that's how you get the 11-year cycle. Now if you ask the solar physicists, and I have been to um, conferences and listened to them try to understand what's going on, they can sort of understand this physics much, much better than I'm explaining it. What's happening? But if you ask them, why is it 11 years, they really can't explain it. They have to sort of put parameters into their models that they can't um, explain where they're coming from. And they look at other stars, and they, they've all got little cycles as well. I'll say all. Oh, some-like stars have little cycles as well with different periods. Um, so it's clearly the same physics is going on, but why it has this particular periodicity, I think, is still not known.
0: Is it, do the other stars have a similar periodicity? They, they
1: vary. Um, and so there was quite a lot of work um, in looking at um, past the sun in the history and comparing it to sun-like stars to saying how it, its radiance would have varied in the past based on the sunspot numbers. And there's a whole discussion about whether the sun-like stars were really sun-like and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. So. Um, but yes, they do. There a of, there's a whole class of stars that are like the sun and have these variations.
0: And so, this is presumably just the size of these things and the age of these things. So, if they're if they're much bigger or much smaller something like something, that, something yeah, only. yeah, so, something
1: to the age of the star, you'll get this sort of effect. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. Okay. Um, and my understanding is that from observations and also some theoretical background, the sunspot. This, this cycle the this solar cycle has uh, sunspots are one manifestation of this yes. but uh, there's also a change in energy flux in terms of stuff Absolutely. that's reaching reaching the earth and, yes. and that's measurable
1: yes
0: so that when the, when the sun, when there are lots of sunspots yes. there's more energy that's, yes. that's hitting.
1: So, um, if we think about what what energy is coming out of the Sun, um, most of the energy is coming out in electromagnetic radiation and um, the the invisible wavelengths that we can see, but there's a whole great spectrum of that. Um, um, There's also um, a lot of particles that are coming out of the Sun, energetic particles, electrons and protons are coming out, and they come out in flares and storms and things like that. So, if we're looking at how the Sun varies, it's on a huge range of timescales from minutes where you get these eruptions and storms and plasma ejections and, and things happening on the scale of minutes through to the... Um, well, there's a rotation of the Sun, that's another geometric factor actually, not a, a vari- variation factor, but if we're sitting on the Earth and looking at the energy coming from the Sun that it varies with a 27-day rotation period, a bit like a lighthouse. So you can imagine Supposing the sun was sun bright on one side and dark on the other, this is a bit of a simplification, sure. but it's it's flashing every 27 days, so you get that modulation of the energy coming into the Earth as 27 well. 27
0: days? That's incredibly fast, I had no idea
1: it was, it was yeah. well... It does, yeah. <laughs> you can do that, so when, when you're perhaps not looking through your telescope, but you can look at the sunspots on some we- wonderful website that will show you. If you look from day to day you, and there's a big fat sunspot, you can look one day and you'll see it track across so thirteen days. It will move across from one side to the next.
0: So, what's the differential in terms of percentages, roughly, um, as we move through this this twenty seven day period? I mean, how how much less? You said it's obviously not dark on one side and yeah, <laughs> right yeah, yeah. On the other. Yeah. But what, what, how much change do I get as I as I as I go? So,
1: it's um, it's of the order of about a tenth of a percent okay. in terms of irradiance coming out, which is that order of magnitude, which is. Um, When there's lots of sunspots around, (laughs) which is similar to the magnitude of the change between a minimum and maximum of a sunspot cycle, Mm -hmm. which actually then is not, you can see why that's not really very surprising because there's lots of sunspots and no sunspots. So, uh, Okay.
0: Um, So at the end of the day, um, I I guess the takeaways are that there are um, considerable differences in the amount of radiation that's hitting the earth. Um, on different timescales and some of them are are due to factors that have nothing to do with the sun but some of them are actually due to the sun's internal processes and and, and structure and magnetic field lines and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, So an obvious question that somebody might have is, well, okay, I can see that you can count sunspots but how do I know that that's linked to um these these periods, this tiny you know, one tenth of one percent differential in terms of energy. energy how do I, how yeah. do I measure that? How do I even know that? What what are the yeah. factors that lead me to conclude that?
1: So we know that now, um, but it's only been known since there's been satellites taking measurements. So that was a, a real area of, of scientific research back in the like the nineteen thirties and fifties. And people knew that the sunspots were coming and going and they had pretty decent radiometers They could measure irradiance from instruments on the ground and they were trying to see whether there was more or less irradiance when uh, there was more or less sunspots. And some thinking was that there would be less radiation when there were more sunspots because you've got black spots blocking out the radiation. perfectly reasonable hypothesis. Um, And they couldn't actually make accurate enough measurements. You know, you're saying it's a tenth of one percent. If you've got an instrument on the ground, you haven't got that sensitivity that you can see that variation with all the atmosphere in the way and the clouds, and then less. And the, even if the atmosphere is clear, you've got turbulence and, and right. things going on. So it, it was only when we got satellites sitting outside the Earth's atmosphere with accurate measurements of the radiation that we know now that there's uh, more energy coming out uh, of the sun when it's got more spots. And that's because um, there is less coming out of the spot area, but the sun's more active and there's more coming out of the surrounding areas and the more compensates, more than compensates for the less, so there's total of more coming out.
0: Right, so there's almost like a filter or a mask that you can perhaps use to distinguish between them. I don't know, maybe not. Um, the, uh, something else that that quite interested me were, were these, uh, these other indicators, these so-called proxy indicators that you talk about. Um, so my understanding is... Um, there, there are, again, so help me here, I'm getting this yeah. from, from, from a, a fairly low-level paper, uh, but my sense is there are these these. So there are these cosmic rays that are coming from all over the place. Yeah. Um, and if you have more stuff that's coming from the sun, these ionized particles and solar wind and all these other things, um, they have a tendency to statistically at least interact with these gamma rays that are that are coming so so that means that we don't see as many gamma rays because they're, they're somehow interacting with the stuff coming from the Sun
1: it, that, that's that, that's, right. sort of, that's the right idea but I think what's happening is that when the sun's more active it has um, also has a stronger magnetic field okay. and so these particles are steered around the outside so they don't actually get in, I see. So they don't hit the, yeah. the,
0: they don't hit whatever so when the sun as
1: you, as you you know have noted that when the sun's more active you get less cosmic rays coming in. These are galactic cosmic rays coming from, it's slightly confusing because the sun itself emits particles and some people refer to those as cosmic rays, solar cosmic rays. So you have to be a bit careful, there's more of those when yeah. the sun's more active. Yeah. Uh, so we have galactic cosmic rays which are coming from galaxies and you know, however, eons away. Um, and so uh, the that, that incidence of those is fairly constant. Um, that's of course the basis of carbon dating and all the rest of it. Um, but when the sun's more active, these are steered away by the stronger magnetic field.
0: And the stronger magnetic field also, as I understand it, uh, that you get when the sun is particularly active, uh, also interacts with the magnetic field of the earth to, to have this, uh, the northern lights yes. and all the rest yes. of this. Yes. So you see more of that, that during, during yes. this time period. Yes. So,
1: well, then you, get, then you get the particles steered around into the poles. Okay. Um, yeah, So that would be particles coming from the sun then. So you've got um, the sun being more active pumping out more particles and I they're see. steering around the magnetic field like Earth's magnetic field lines right into the poles to give
0: you... I see. So of yeah. course the, Earth, the Earth's magnetic field isn't changing but there's more stuff that's coming at yeah. it from the Sun yeah. because the Sun is more yeah. active. Yeah. So there are all these other tangential or proxy indicators when you can see other things happening um, because the Sun is more active than it was before. Yes. Um, and... W- so it seems to me that's pretty cool because what that enables you to do, as I understand it, is answer these obvious questions about, okay, well, this is all very nice theoretically, but how do we know what happened yes. 10,000 years ago or 50,000 yes. years ago or 100,000 years ago? Because some traces of these interactions actually exist in nice cores and all the rest of this sort of stuff. So maybe yes. you could talk a little bit about how that works so that we, we yes. know that these, these things had the a case.
1: So um, the cosmic rays um, interact with um, atoms um, in the atmosphere and in the earth and produce um, higher levels of isotopes. So in beryllium and carbon you get higher isotope levels when there's more cosmic rays. And then those um, atoms will decay back to their normal state over very, very long periods. So you've got a higher uh, proportion of those when there's been more cosmic rays. So you can use the the fraction of um, that isotope to the normal isotope to tell you how active the Sun was when when those um, molecules were forming. So um, you can look at um, carbon-14 and you can look at beryllium-10 and both of those things will tell you about... um, cosmic rays have been influenced by solar, Um, but uh, actually I could not get into more complications. So if you've got an ice core, you can use the oxygen isotopes to tell you about the temperature variations, Um, then you've got to worry about the beryllium because that's also affected by temperature, that's the complication.
0: The point is that it, you don't have one single indicator, so you have to take both into account. Yeah,
1: exactly this. that. And if you find that the I think it's, if you find that the beryllium and the carbon are both doing the same thing, you can be fairly sure that it's due to the sun. Whereas if you find the carbon's doing one that's different to the beryllium, then you know that it's the temperature that's the temperature doing the carbon.
0: Right. It seems to me as, I'm, uh, as I was reading this that um, if you just look at the variations of, of of solar activity, solar irradiance, and, and it's so incredibly messy. Your field s- strikes me as just unbelievably messy because even if you can somehow get a handle on this, then you have to correspond. Th- then you have to make the correspondence with well, it's actually not the same all over the Earth. It, anyway, you can look globally, but then regionally in terms of the effect on climate, which we haven't really got to, and we're going to yeah. get to soon. Um, even if you know the the precisely which presumably you don't but even if you know precisely the the global fluctuations in irradiance that doesn't tell you exactly what happens on a regional level with climate so there's that messiness then there's the fact that even if you know the global fluctuations in solar activity and irradiance, it's frequency-dependent anyway, so it's not even, it, it fluctuates all over the place in terms of frequency, and that's going to have different effects.
1: Well, this is why it's fun to study, you know, yeah. it's easy, we wouldn't want to do it, would we?
0: It just seems very complicated, because all these things, as you say, is one can sort of push you and pull you, and it seems, yeah. it seems very complex.
1: But we, you know, if you start from the sort of, um, the question of, is global surface air temperature changing, global average... Um, then you can, you can start off a very simple perspective and you do this with climate change anyway in terms of it, what's called radiative forcing of climate change. And um, you get a radiative forcing by changing in the sun's radiation. You get a radiative forcing if you increase carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. You get a radiative forcing if you put volcanic aerosol up in the atmosphere. You get radiative forcing if you change the brightness of the surface. And this is a fairly simple concept. So we start off with the radiative forcing due to the changes in the total radiation coming out of the sun at any particular time. We can get a sort of zeroth order estimate of what its effect on temperature would be. Mm. And on um, timescales of say hundreds of years, it is pretty small. It's pretty small. Um, you know, even even there's question about the there's a lot of discussion about this. Um, the minimum in sunspots in the late 16th century, um, as to whether or not that was associated with what's become known as the Little Ice Age, which is a cooler period in temperatures, particularly in the North Atlantic region. Um, and it's it's um, possible that it had an effect, but it may also be due to the fact that there'd been quite a lot of volcanism at that time, so there's lots of volcanic aerosol particles cooling the climate. So. I think on those sort of long time scales, and just looking at the global average um, uh, the sun's effect is very small
0: right so that's that's the bottom line that that, yeah. that I think we should all bear in mind that yeah. after you do all of these models and all of these calculations and, mm-hmm. and you, you, you look at all the possible mechanisms and mm-hmm. again, I'd like to get to some of those in, in, in a moment, but it's very important to bear in li- bear in mind that uh, the conclusion, as I understand it, is that if you take that all into account, and you're presumably as liberal as, as, as you can be with these things, you yeah. don't set your parameters so that it necessarily leads yeah. you to this particular level, um, you find that there's no way you can explain the increase in, in global temperatures without anthropocentric factors being taken into account. Is that is that a fair absolutely. assessment? Absolutely.
1: That's absolutely it. I mean, you could perhaps get away with it till about 1960 or something, you um, know, but uh, you cannot get the global warming without having increased greenhouse gases or some magical factor that nobody's thought of. But um, I think it's unlikely to be that because we can actually if we do the physics and we put the all the other factors that we know about into the big models we can reproduce the temperature change sort of fairly well.
0: Yeah. And and so I, again I keep threatening you with this but I do I do want to get into some <laughs> some aspects uh, of the mechanisms but I I think it's important for everyone and certainly myself and I was reading this to remember because Driven back to my earlier comments, which is well. If that's true, one might say, if it's true that once you go through all of this mathematics and you build all your models and you find out, well, guess what? Um oh, wasting
1: well, my time. <laughs> this, right.
0: So why why worry about that? Um, and and my sense. So there may be many more factors, but my sense is that there are two very important reasons to do that. You you have to be scientific and rigorous and understand what the available natural mechanisms are. And as you so pithily pointed out, we have to look at the sun because that's what we've mm-hmm. got. There's nothing else that's, that's that's going on. And the other, of course, is that it could well be the case that whatever factors uh, solar fluctuations are inducing on our climate might be maximized or minimized or exacerbated or interfered with in some particular way uh, due to man-made, climate change, and so yeah. it's vital for us to understand those mechanisms as best as we can.
1: Yes, yeah, so um, as I've just said, that the, the long-term global average temperature change used to the Sun is, is probably um, quite small, but if we look in different parts of the globe, we find that there are statistical correlations that seem to be robust with solar activity and local temperature, um, particularly, say, in the North Atlantic region, we tend to get colder winters when the Sun's less active. Um, so that's a nice question to to uh, try and understand what's going on there, um, and then um, we start we start to sort of look at the factors that will uh, change the regional distribution of, of winds and temperatures rather than just the sort of global average temperature, um, which is important because if you're you know if you're sitting at somewhere particular on the globe, global average temperature to you is you know, perhaps not of particular interest, and that absolutely applies to con- to climate change as well. I mean, if you, global warming may be one thing, but if you're sitting in a part of Africa where the temperature is going to be rising 10 degrees when it's already 35, you know, you, you uh, it's much worse. Yeah. Um, so the regional effects are, are important and, and not just temperature but um, winds and precipitation and, and all the other things that really affect people rather than just a sort of global average number. So it's important to understand what's going on and um, And as you've suggested, um, trying to understand whether these effects are actually linearly additive or not is is a very interesting question, Um, whether or not you can add some CO2 to some changes in sun and um, get some of the two parts, or whether if you do them together you'll get something different is a very interesting question.
0: Do you have any sense or speculation right now about how linear or nonlinear these things are that you can, you can say, well this is in all likelihood going to be a nonlinear. It seems to me that well, non-linearities should be all over the place and yeah. this stuff yeah because I mean just basically if you're heating something up, I mean the greenhouse effect is, a, is, is yeah. certainly looks like a non-linear effect to me, right you're, you're, mm-hmm. uh, you have all these gases that are trapped and things get hotter and they get hotter still and then you get other things that, that, that are a result of the fact that they're hotter still And so you can imagine without knowing anything, which happens to be, fortunately, where I am. Um, <laughs> I <don't think> so. <laughs> that that you you have these built-in non-linearities just all over the place. Um, so it seems like this field would lend itself to that, but maybe I'm missing something. Is that
1: um, well? Uh, so there's so many different questions here now. So. Yeah. <laughs> I do
0: that. Uh,
1: the greenhouse effect um, is a wonderful. Fundamental part of the climate. So, um, if we didn't have a greenhouse effect in the atmosphere, the temperature would be about 30, global average again. Temperature would be about thirty degrees colder than it is. So, it would not be the nice habitable place that we live in. More than two thirds of that is due to water vapor in the atmosphere, mm. uh, and that's the water vapor that's keeping us, you know, warm and comfortable. Um, and carbon dioxide is the next most important naturally occurring. Carbon dioxide is the next most important one. But we sort of understand the physics of that pretty well. It's been known about since, well, Fourier or, no, it's uh, fairly well established. Um, But then you're right to suggest that there's non-linearities. So what happens is if you warm up the surface of the Earth, you get more water vapor evaporated from the surface. More water vapor in the atmosphere. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas that will give you warmer than you would have got without that subsequent effect. So all those things need to be taken care of and they're just the sort of actually the simpler things to work out because it's fairly fairly simple thermodynamics to do that sort of thing. Uh, But when you start talking about um, regional meteorology um, and the sort of chaotic system which the whole of the Earth's climate is in, then it's all very complex. so you sometimes hear people, for example, going back to the global average again, saying, um, oh, well, you know, you tell us that the carbon dioxide is going up, we'll, we'll accept that. You can see the graph with it going up, and it varies annually, but pretty much it's going up year on year. But the temperature's not going up year on year, it's wobbling around all over the place. So therefore, you're wrong. It's not the CO2 that's doing it. There's, there's no relationship. Yeah. We had a thing about there was a so-called hiatus in temperature where... The, the, the warming didn't go up as much as it had been going up for perhaps 15 years or so. It flattened off a bit. It's shooting up again now. And that was uh, a lot of discussion about that. Oh, well, you know, so what's going on here then? It's not CO2. It's um. It's just because the whole thing is like sloshing around in a bucket and you've got to take the atmosphere, you've got the oceans, you've got everything else messing around together. The fact it's not going smoothly is absolutely... Not a surprise at all. Right. Um, you need to have um, a longer term view. And in terms of how you study it, what you need to do is run models lots and lots and lots of time. So we have big climate models that, you know, trying to simulate what's going on across the world. Um, and if you start, you always have to start them from some position, some date, or, you know, some parameters, just initial, initializing them. If you just change the initialization parameters very, very slightly, it will evolve in a different way. So, what we have is uh, we run ensembles of model runs. So you start them in a slightly different way and then you follow the trajectory and you get a sort of wiggle, 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 wiggle with one and a different wiggle, wiggle, wiggle with the next and you can run sort of a hundred of them. Right. Um, but when you've run lots, you get the broader picture. So you can see the climate change emerging. Whereas if you look for year on year, you wouldn't you wouldn't see it nearly so much because it's such a noisy system. So again, this is something that's quite it's quite difficult to get over when you're trying to explain about climate change is that you really have to have, you you can't predict what's going to happen in you know July twenty fifty, but you can predict that in in twenty fifty it's likely to be so much warmer than it is now, given this range of uncertainty due to the natural Complexity of the system,
0: and presumably, um, the better and better the computer models get, the more, um, the more the more dimensions you can have in your simulation, the more the more potential trajectories you can have, and the greater the sense of convergence Uh, overall. Or is that yes? So that's
1: interesting because, um, in terms of um, weather forecasting, which of course is you know a much shorter time period, we use exactly the same climate models. Um, But um, the higher resolution you have, the better weather forecasting you can do. The higher resolution, I mean better spatial scales. Um, In climate prediction, there's also a feeling that if you get better and better resolution, you should get better and better predictions. But it's not entirely obvious that that's going to be the case, because you still have to run your um, ensemble of predictions. And it may be that you better use your computing time in doing a wider ensemble Mm. More more components than like one run with very 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 high resolution, which would still have the natural complexity in it. So uh, it, that's that's an unanswered question. Um,
0: well, I mean, uh, they're not uh, terribly well posed questions, and 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 some of it I think would be speculative. And, and so I wanted to get to this later, but you brought it up now, so I'll ask now. So it seems to me. Um, Many people probably have heard of aspects of chaos and the butterfly effect, and so forth, when you're talking about predicting weather, um, and this notion that um, there are instabilities all over the place. So there yeah. may be some inst, and you can't predict when the instability is going yeah. to arise and yeah. blow up, and all the rest of that sort of thing. But presumably, in terms of some of these simulations. One, so one, one way you can do that is to try to have a, a really fine grain filter, increasing your resolution as you say, mm-hmm. so that you know every millimeter or whatever it is mm-hmm. of your yeah. area. But even that, it seems to me, wouldn't necessarily work because if if you have instabilities there, yep. then they'll blow up. But if you if you run this for five thousand, increase the ensembles as you're saying. So you run this for five thousand different possibilities or yes. different scenarios or something, and three and a half thousand of them wind up over here, that should be a pretty strong indicator.
1: I I mean, I think that's absolutely the point. So, um, in terms of complexity, it's a naturally complex system and you're not going to make that go away however fine resolution you get because that's just part of the um, whole system. You can reduce numerical instability in your computer models, you know, you can show mathematically that you get instabilities due to the way that you formulated the equations. But you can't get rid of the actual, real, physical things that are going on all the time. So, um, as you say, it's much better to just run lots and lots of um, runs and get a, a, an envelope of, of variability that into the future, or just in, in time. So you get a range of uh, uncertainty. Um, so your, your butterfly effect will affect one and it'll affect another, but it won't. It's unlikely to make it go up or not make many of them go off in a strange
0: direction. Right. So Let me get back to where I promised to get to, which is just if you can sketch out, given the fact that the sun is variable and we have uh, greater or lesser, we have periods of greater or lesser uh, radiance, um, how does that affect our climate? What are the various mechanisms uh, for, for the change in this uh, flux from the sun affecting our climate, forgetting all about man made stuff, just just yes, our yes. best guess at what the mechanisms actually are to more stuff from the sun, what does that do and how does that work, and less stuff from the sun and so forth.
1: Yes. So if, if we say now that we're um, not going to bother about, or not going to look at the change in total irradiance because we've just discussed that's actually very small and doesn't have much effect, then um, it's quite interesting to look at the sun's spectrum. So it, it has a spectrum of radiation leaving it, which is peaking in the visible, but it's got wavelengths right the way through to the ultraviolet one end and to the thermal infrared in the other end. And the interesting thing about that is that if you look at the 11-year um, cycle, sunspot cycle, you get a, um, a one-tenth of one percent variation in the total irradiance, but it's very, very strongly spectrally dependent, and the, the radiation varies by much larger fractions in the ultraviolet. Um, than it does in the visible. So the visible is actually controlling the total because that's where most of the energy is. But the variations in the ultraviolet go to sort of one percent, ten percent. Even by the time you get down to one hundred nanometers, it's doubling between um, solar max and solar min. So um, this, this is why I got interested in it because oh, there's, oh, there's some really good physics going on there. Um, there was even some work which is still uh, still in being investigated that there was less radiation coming out in in the, in the near infrared. Region when the sun is more active than when it's less active. So at a phase that's still being worked on, so that may not be the case. But the point is um, that it's hugely wavelength dependent, and the implications of that are that the sun w- w- will affect different parts of the atmosphere differently than the very simplistic idea of just responding to the total amount of energy. So. Um, you asked me before about, about my career and how it evolved, and I told you I was working on the stratosphere, because the radiation that's important in the stratosphere for ozone and things is the ultraviolet, which is why my ears pricked up when I heard about this um, solar variability thing, because the UV variation is much larger, so much larger, but it's only a few percent, but I mean it's much larger than one-tenth of one percent um, than, than the total radiation, so oh, that could do something. So I started looking at how changes in the UV spectrum could influence the climate. And, um, well, not surprisingly, what happens is that the temperature in the stratosphere goes up and down quite a lot, a few degrees, and that's been measured by satellites and it's fairly well, not in detail, but it's fairly well understood. so, okay, you say, well, <clears throat> changes in the stratosphere—that's all very interesting. It might be interesting, <laughs> it might be interesting for stratospheric chemistry and ozone, but is it have any effect on us living on the Earth's surface? And that's what I've spent some time working on. Um, and in fact, there's a whole whole range of people working on how changes in the stratosphere, for many reasons—not just the sun, other reasons too—could be influencing the climate at the surface, and um, the mechanisms that. Um, Seem to work or, you know, realistic, um, are not due directly to radiation. So, you know, I've talked about the heat radiation and the solar radiation. So that's all happening up here. What happens um, down below is uh, due to changes in the wind circulations, and that's a response to the change in temperature gradients in the stratosphere. So if the sun's warming different parts of the stratosphere up more than others you get a temperature gradient then you get a change in the winds and that affects the circulations down below and then you can see how you might get an effect at the surface We ran some you know, fairly simple modelling um, studies of, of that effect um, and they looked plausibly similar to the the observational changes so we think that's, that might be happening to a certain extent
0: I can imagine somebody might be watching this and not have a technical background at all and might be very skeptical to say, well, you know, you can create a model to do anything. You can create a model to look like Mickey Mouse or whatever it is that you, oh, you nice. want, to, want to show. Yeah. So um, how stringent do you think the controls are such that you're actually replicating um, effects that we might be seeing? How, how confident are you and why are you so confident that this is actually a mechanism which is in play?
1: Well, you know, how good are the models? So that's. Um,
0: that was the question I should that, have asked. That's yes. a much shorter, direct <laughs> question.
1: No, no, how good are the models? Because, and then how, how do the mechanisms pan out in the models? Mm. So, um, right, well, to start off with, if somebody doesn't understand what a model is, we should explain it's not. Um, A a, a box with some air in that I'm stirring on the lab desk trying to simulate. It's not a model like that, like a model car, or, you know, it's a numerical model. It runs on a computer. And it's based on uh, fundamental physics that we understand quite well. Uh, So uh, we have, uh, I'll get into details here, we've got Newton's second law. So you've got forces, mass times acceleration. Acceleration is force per unit mass. What are the forces? Within the atmosphere, we have. gravity. We have, um, we have a pressure gradient force so if you look at the weather charts, you know, high pressure over here, low pressure over here would tend to make the air try and flow from high to low. It doesn't because there's a Coriolis force which is due to the Earth's rotation and then you've got to take into account um, viscosity and, and that sort of thing. So if you write down all the forces you can work out the acceleration. That's the first law. Um, then you've got continuity equation or conservation of mass So uh, that is, um, what goes in must come out or else it gets squashed. Then you've got um, thermodynamics, so if you add heat to something, it'll get hot or it'll expand. Um, And then you've got the final law which is essentially um, the ideal gas law which you may remember from school as PV is RT or something. It's relationship between pressure, temperature and density. So those are very basic, very well understood physics Equations, and we can write them down in a form that can be solved on a computer. And when I say solved, um, it's like um, simultaneous equations. So I don't want to patronise people. Okay, so um, simultaneous equations—you probably did them at school, and you did two equations in x plus y, and you can solve for x and y because you've got two equations. So with, with these equations I've just described. Um, we actually have six equations and six unknowns. And you may have been counting and said, hang on a minute, you only had four equations. <laughs> but I've got six equations because the wind one has three components, okay. it can go forward and back and sideways and up and down. So there's three winds, um, pressure, density, and temperature, so six, six equations and six unknowns. So we can actually, it's like a system.
0: Um,
1: But. <laughs> there's time variation in those equations so you have to iterate and that's where what I haven't I've glossed over a bit, the forcings come in so I talked about heating you've got to get the heating in there and how you represent that and then you've got all sorts of things like um, water vapour which is involved in the heating due to the greenhouse effect but more importantly it's involved in the heating due to the fact that it condenses out into clouds so this is where the rather messy uh, sort of real physics sort of gets into the models so it is pretty basic physics, and we can construct these models in a way that are um, you know, fairly well established, but there are these details that need to be done well. So how well are they done? Well, one way you can test them is by saying, well, how well can you simulate the present climate? And it absolutely amazes me still that we can write down these equations, we can solve them mathematically, and what we come up with is something that gives you... You know, the, the northwest trade winds, it gives you the easterlies. it gives you the, the pressure patterns with the storms going along in mid-latitudes, it gives you rising air in the tropics and deserts in mid-latitudes, you know, it's, a, it's wonderful, <laughs> it's marvellous. It won't get you the weather precisely right all the time in every place, no, but it, it, it suggests that the fundamental physics that's in those models is, is pretty robust. So then the question is, to what extent you can take them outside their comfort zone? Or you, know, you do have to put parameters in to do with the convection and the clouds and all these sort of complicated things. How well you can use those parameterisations into a scenario which is different from where you started. So how good are those simulations when you're doing a climate change scenario? So then you can say, okay, we'll, we'll do what's referred to as a hindcast. We'll do a historical simulation, we'll put in what we know about changes in the sun, the volcanoes and all the rest of it, and see how well we do in terms of historical climate. And it's not bad, it's not bad, I mean there's certain things that are still difficult, um,
0: Have they gotten appreciably better over the over the last ten or fifteen years?
1: Yeah, well, if you, look, if you look at weather forecasts, behind the, um, hind,
0: the hindcasts. Uh, so,
1: um, so, if you are looking at climate hindcasts. Um, they're they're definitely getting better. If you look at if you look at global um, average, they're they're very good now. Um, if you look at um, regional patterns, there are some problems um, which are related to things like um, uh, El Niño simulations. So we can't. Precisely date those, and that's because the physics of the air-sea interaction is quite complicated, and it's not—it's sort of sort of understood, but it's not, you know, in particular um, detail understood. Mm. So, um, but then, as I said about predicting climate into the future, you can't pre- predict precisely, you know, on a particular day what it's going to be like, but you can predict typical, and in the back uh, hindcast, we can we can do similar.
0: So you can predict general trends and hind, hindcast yes. trends, yeah. Yeah, so, so you mentioned, uh, in terms of the mechanism uh, for climate due to solar variability, you mentioned, um, the stuff he says to use a technical term, um, in the stratosphere due to ultraviolet radiation, and presumably there, there are others as well. So that's one. Uh, and, and all the things that can result from that, right, from the increased UV radiation. But there, yeah. my understanding is there there are some other mechanisms as well.
1: So another mechanism that has been um, investigated a bit is, uh, we talked earlier about cosmic rays. And so uh, people have measured cosmic rays at the Earth's surface for, well, since the 1950s, and they are definitely modulated by the solar activity, um, so there's more when the sun's less active and we also know that the cosmic rays are the main um, source of ionization in the, in the upper atmosphere. So people have hy- hypothesized that um, solar modulation of the ionization might have climate impacts. Um, and there's two ways that that could happen. Um, one is through um, changes in the Earth's electric, electrical circuit. so there is an electrical circuit in the atmosphere and so that might influence convection or something like that, and thunderstorms and this sort of thing. And the other way is that um, it's been suggested that um, if you get little particles... When clouds are created in the atmosphere you need them to condense onto little particles. The water vapour won't just spontaneously condense out even when it's below zero. You need tiny little particles of dirt or something floating up there for the clouds to condense onto. And there's a suggestion that when there's more cosmic rays, there's more ionization of these particulates in the atmosphere, that you might get more cloud, or at least uh, clouds made of smaller particles, which have different radiative properties. Um, Indeed, they're more reflective. So more sun, more cosmic rays, more reflective clouds, cooler climate. That's another uh, uh, potential. It uh, has had much less, I could say, validation or testing than some of the other more radiation those theories,
0: and presumably um, there's an additional question. Once one even flushes these out a little bit more, which is how do they interact amongst each other? So if you have uh, two or three different mechanisms, right. you could imagine that yes. they would they might complement each other, they yes. might interfere with one another, they might, yes. they, and, and so that's a maybe a higher level question.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, uh, uh, one topic we haven't really talked about yet is solar particles. And so we we did say they were coming into high latitudes, um, and they do, they cause the aurora in the upper atmosphere, but when they get a bit further down into the stratosphere, they noticeably cause um, ozone depletion. Mm. So you get ozone depletion events at high latitudes um, when the sun's more active, and this depleted ozone air sinks downwards and towards the equator within within the stratosphere. So um, based on what I was saying before about changes in um, radiation, affecting the ozone and affecting the climate, you can see that there's a plausible uh, route whereby that coupling might also influence. Um, they're much more um, intermittent uh, than the sort of 11-year cycle and so that the effects might last a little while uh, but it's not clear that they come far enough down or that they can have a significant enough effect on temperature to produce any, um, any effect at the surface. But in terms of non-linearity, you're, you're absolutely Spot on there because we got when the sun's more active, you get um, more storm, More storms that are depleting the ozone, you get more UV, which is increasing the ozone, and so you know, woo, 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 lovely mess.
0: So, moving a little bit to public policy and the man on the street and the woman on the street and her interpretation of uh, what this all means. I can imagine that um, sometimes the messiness and the complexity might be counterproductive for you. So let me describe what I mean and, and give you a chance to react to it. So the models are complicated. There are so many, even though, as you say, maybe it's a product of basic physics here and basic physics there, but when you add it all up and see what's reinforced and what's canceled and how you can even measure it to the extent that you would like to measure it, not to mention whether there are instabilities here and complexity and chaos and all the rest of that stuff. Um, It's very rigorous science. There's nothing other than scientific rigor that's going on, but it's inherently complicated. You need high-level models. You need um, high-level computer simulations. Um, you need some time to be able to check within the community and recheck and uh, as any scientific activity. And I could imagine that it might be the case that the average person might just throw up his or her hands and yeah. say, well, you know, it can be here or there or up or down yeah. and they don't really know what's going on, so yeah. I'm just not going to worry about it. Yeah. Does, that, does that ever come into play?
1: Oh, all, all the time, absolutely that. And um, I think one problem we have as scientists is that, you know, we, if we frequently really refer to uncertainty as something... As, as, as fundamental to the whole scientific process, but to a person who's not a trained scientist, uncertainty means basically you don't know. So you talk about you know you've got an uncertainty range on this forecast, and they say, well you know, you don't Why know what you you're talking about. You. Exactly, exactly that. <laughs> so you know it's very difficult to think how how to do this. So um, I've stopped trying. To, I've stopped. am try, trying to stop talking about uncertainty and talking about. Um, Sort of risk and um, uh, odds, and you know, people understand that if you put betting on a horse race, a certain odds of something happening and it not happening, and they sort of they buy that. You know, whether the horse wins or not may not be physically determined but um, you know, there's a chances of certain things happening, and the chances of you know an old donkey winning are very very low. So, by doing all this physics, we can look at the chances of the temperature being such and such, and are we have a 90% certainty. i will use that word again. Range that um, such and such will happen, and that's the way that we operate. Is that is that you, you persuaded by this or not? Well,
0: uh, it's <laughs> no question of being persuaded. I'm 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 trying to put myself in your situation and and recognise that this is very difficult because another factor that I haven't mentioned is. I'm guessing, and again, tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong, that you have a difficult road to navigate. Because if on the one hand, you're honest and you speak to people as you would speak to your scientific colleagues and say, here is our range of uncertainty, and here is our Mm -hmm. conviction of these particular parameters or those particular parameters. you're leery as you've just carefully enunciated that this might be misconstrued by members of the general public that you don't know what the heck you're talking about really and it's there's too much variation mm-hmm. and so why should we listen to you? On the other hand, if by whatever um, particular metaphors or analogies or epithets or what have you, you portray a picture which makes you sound more confident than... A scientist might construe your models to be, yeah. then you run the risk of of being. I was going to say anathematized, That's too strong. But you you run the risk of provoking other members of the scientific establishment Absolutely. from saying, "Well, you know, yeah. we can't say this with the amount of no. surety that oh that, yes, or assuredness." Yes.
1: So you may have heard of the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which produces huge reports uh, every so often on the state of the climate, and what we know about it, and what's going on. And it's it's created by hundreds of scientists um, working together to write these reports. And (laughs) they have to put degrees of understanding or uncertainty ranges or whatever you like to call it on all their discussions and they, we, I mean I've done it it recently but uh, I've done it in the past, sit for hours discussing whether it's probable or likely or not likely or extremely likely, you know, and um, what words you use and what, what, what do those words actually mean in terms of what your models or your data are saying,
0: uh, uh. <laughs> people talk for hours on it. But it's, it's extremely important because as, as I understand it, um, you're in a bit of a fix because on the one hand, you have through scientific rigor and analysis come to the conclusion that we mentioned earlier, which is there can be no doubt that um, that the current fluctuations in our climate are are caused not by these natural causes due to solar variability or what have you, but by man-created anthropocentric factors that have led to the ch- change in climate over the last 50 or 60 years. So that's point number one, as I understand it. Yeah. And then point number two is, that notwithstanding and notwithstanding the progress we've made in developing our models and understanding the mechanics and understanding the systems and developing simulations and all the rest of that, we can't speak with 100% confidence. We can't speak maybe even in principle with 100% confidence for some particular forecasts or estimated. And we can't. We are not at the stage yet where we can speak with the sort of conviction and certainty about the various different mechanisms that we would like to. But we know... Point A, for a fact, the one I mentioned before, and we have growing understanding of the various mechanisms of uh, solar variability on climate, Um, and we can certainly set bounds to it, upper bounds and lower bounds, depending on these various simulations, and we're growing in confidence with these things, Mm -hmm. but we can't speak in the way that a member of the general public would necessarily get comfort from or, or, or like us to be able to speak, and And so that would, if I were in your situation, that would put me in a bit of a fix, because on the one hand, you believe that something very significant is going on that requires active public policy, and on the other hand, you can't speak with the amount of rigorous scientific conviction of certainty that you would necessarily like to.
1: Well, that's true, but that's inherent in science in general, I think. And I think the public would understand, for example, if you went to your doctor with some complaint... Um, and you describe the symptoms um, and the doctor said I'm not entirely sure but I think I'm pretty confident that it's such and such and I'd like to prescribe such a, a treatment for you you'd understand what that meant, you'd understand that the doctor couldn't be completely sure but it was probably in the best interest of you to take this treatment because if you don't try to take it something worse
0: might happen so I have more confidence in atmospheric scientists than I do in the medical profession. <laughs> so that, maybe that's me, and, and, and maybe you're talking to the wrong guy. Um, but this is precisely—I mean, this is one of the problems. Since you brought it up, not to unduly pick on the medical profession, but th- this is this is one of my problems: is that all too often people in the medical profession—they don't actually say that they don't know. They they. They will project this air of confidence and authority, and then when I start questioning them, it becomes intuitively obvious to me that they don't know. And then they lose all credibility in in my eyes because they've been bluffing. And so maybe this is just me, but I think what I'm trying to touch on is that maybe one of the battles that you're dealing with is is a lack of public understanding of legitimate open and honest scientific practice and what oh. it means to be able to say you don't know you told me that uh, and i understand this that people spend hours and hours around tables thinking about what words mm. that they should use to assuage the public and so forth but from my perspective um i think it's an important part of the scientific practice to say look we don't know this is what we do know and this is why yes. we we say that we do know it Yes. Um, and if that makes you feel uncomfortable well let me explain to you what science is all about. <laughs>
1: well, if anybody would stop and listen, of course, that's exactly exactly what we'd like to say, be able to say. Uh, but then, there's governments want you to, um, you know, give an answer so that obviously they need to know what to do in their policy on building nuclear reactors or whatever uh, we're talking about this week.
0: <laughs> well, so there's gov- So I want to get to government in a bit, but let me talk first about. One of my hobby horses, which is the media, because we haven't talked specifically about that, and it seems to me that the media does play a pivotal role here because uh, they they are the medium um, through which you communicate yeah. to the public, and if you're a member of the general public, um, how else do you find out? Well, you're not going to go yes. read read an article in an atmospheric yeah. science. You're going to listen to someone like yourself and you're maybe going to hear a debate somewhere and you've got to pick it up and read it in the newspaper or, or, yeah. or on the radio yeah. or what have you. Is the media doing its job and if it's not doing its job as well as it could be, what should it be doing differently?
1: Um, some aspects of the media are doing a really good job and they have really good environmental correspondence. They come and talk to us. They try and understand what's going on. They ring us up and ask you know, if they don't understand things. Um, uh, they consult the Science Media Center to get you know, the good angle and ask several scientists about a particular issue to get, get the whole picture. Um, but, of course, um, certain aspects of the media want you know, an exciting story um, and if somebody comes up with something that says, oh, the sun's causing climate change, they, they love that and they'll push it just because it's more exciting than me saying it's not doing very much. So you can see why they want to sell the papers. Um, Or whatever. Um, Certain journalists um, uh, appear to have bees in their bonnets um, and actually, uh, politically or otherwise, seem to be motivated to uh, support denialist, uh, climate change denialist angles. Um, And you'd have to ask them why they want to be like that.
0: And in your experience, these are certain journalists, rather than certain—I'm not asking for names—but yeah. certain publications, certain uh, certain fora, certain organizations, or even certain types of media. Do you do you have a sense that that television is is by and large over here, and 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 radio is over here, or this type of you know broadsheets are here and tabloids are there? Do you, do you, is, is there anything that no? I mean, there's, there's
1: good and bad ones in all of them. Uh, absolutely, all of them. So, if you take the newspapers, the heavyweight newspapers, there's some are really solid, and others, uh, uh, you know, uh, publishing this denialist and rubbish stuff, presumably because their uh, proprietors is wanting them to to say that sort of thing. I don't know why they would do that, but it does vary from journalist to journalist as well, um, and some of them are much better than others, even within each of those particular newspapers. And then you get, the, you know, the um, the tabloids. Some of those they produce really nice stories obviously they're not in such depth and detail, but they, they you know they get the essence and they put it over um, so it, it's not really it's not such so easy to distinguish right. and I've done you know radio um, obviously Radio four's the obvious one, but um, radio five live chatting radio London um, people seem to be interested, perhaps they're just being polite I don't know. <laughs>
0: Well, you are British, after all. They are. Must They're be off it. there, yeah, and yeah, everybody was yeah. playing. So. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, there has been a change in societal attitudes. Of that, there's, I think, little doubt that that uh, in the present day, there is vast a, a vastly increased amount of awareness for issues such as climate change. I'm sure there are very... Many deniers, but there are doubtless far fewer deniers.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, that was my thing. <laughs> oh.
0: I'm sure there are far fewer deniers now than there were 30 years ago, or, or 20 years ago, or perhaps even 10 years ago. Um, so something seems to be happening in terms of public awareness. Uh, the word, uh, maybe it's not optimally constructed, but the word is the scientific yeah. establishment's word is getting out. People yeah. know about the IPCC's deliberations and this is something which has been going on for some time and there's, there is a general understanding that a, a growing and mounting body of scientific evidence is pointing in this particular direction.
1: I think that's right. And, and there's been um, some really good programs in schools. You know, people might say the children being brainwashed, but no, the, the, this, the environmental science that's being taught in schools is so much better than it, than it ever was before and the children are educating their parents to a certain extent, so that's very good. Um, I don't know
0: what I was going to say now. Uh, Okay, that's fine. Um, So moving on to the political arena, um, a a couple of questions. You pointed out that... um, Politicians have to know what to do at some point. I mean, you can't just say, oh, it's all very complicated. It's very mm-hmm. complicated. We have a general conviction mm-hmm. here. They they have to know, or should we site a nuclear reactor here or there or not at all? Um, what sorts of policies should we be undertaking and so forth? So uh, a simple question, or at least simple to phrase, if you were prime minister mm-hmm. with a majority government, uh, A big majority government in this in this country. What would you do? What sorts of policies would you invoke?
1: I would put much more investment into renewable energy. I mean, um, at the moment, some of the uh, the, the sorts of energy are not as cheap as you know oil, for example, at the moment. But uh, as the technology improves, we've seen the price, for example, of solar photovoltaics has been plummeting. It's getting cheaper and cheaper. And in terms of solving the world's energy needs why wouldn't you? I mean, in, rather than relying on extremely expensive nuclear power or the, uh, of course, the, the, the coal and oil, which has been doing all the damage up till now. Um, and, it, it, you know, there's such an opportunity for innovators and people to invest in new technologies that will create clean energy in any number of clever ways that, that you know, I can't think of, but these inventors can think of, and some of them are already going down the line, others to be discovered. A Bit more money, and also um, they stopped the Green Deal. What a shame! There was something wrong with the Green Deal. This is this I is where, the, Green so the Green Deal was where the government would give you money to insulate your home and give you money to replace your faulty boiler and you know generally make your house more energy efficient. Um, I think it, I think it wasn't costed properly or some, there was something wrong with it. Anyway, they just stopped it. But it you know it was beginning to get. It, yeah, energy. We can we can do half the problem by just making energy this uh, or making our energy use more efficient. Uh, so just doing that, you know, it's a, what they call low-hanging fruit. It's an easy thing to do. Right. Um, Subsidise that sort of thing.
0: This was the big political question about being prime minister. Uh, I can imagine someone else might be watching this, saying, "Well, this is all very interesting, but what can I do? I'm just one." person yeah. somewhere. I'm, I'm actually not prime minister, and um, I, I'm I'm not a major investor in, in any companies, fossil fuels or otherwise. So is there anything that I could be doing, not only in terms of my pattern of consumption and my uh, day-to-day living, but also in terms of education, awareness, Political lobbying, what have you? What what advice might you give to? So an I think person?
1: I think it's very important to lobby your MPs. Um, you know, I, I guess if the same person is lobbying their MP all the time. The MP will stop listening. But before the last election, uh, I talked to a lot of MP candidates, and they said they did they did like to listen to what their constituents were telling them, and if there were a lot of constituents telling them they were worried about climate change. They'd be much more likely to do something about it than if it was just the old scientists banging on about it. So that's the number one thing: get all your friends to tell your MP that you're you're concerned, and please can they can they do something? Mm. Um, then you can make sure that your council's doing good stuff with um, recycling and energy saving and tra- local transport, improving local transport. Um, it's all the obvious stuff.
0: Is there a sense of Optimism that you have now, given your concerns and given the response that society has to these things, you mentioned discontinuing some some programs and so forth. On the whole, would you say that you're optimistic or pessimistic about? I the
1: think future? if you if you look at the international uh, perspective, it's um it's really encouraging. I mean, the, the COP meeting this was the Conference of Parties, the United Nations Climate meeting in Paris before Christmas was amazing. It was, it was so extraordinary. In you know, 195 countries unanimously declaring that they're going to do something about it. I mean, whoa! You think what, how difficult, that different that was to Copenhagen six years previously, and they couldn't agree to anything at all. I mean, I wouldn't have known they were going to agree on anything, let alone that, so that's hugely positive. And subsequently, um, you know, the, the countries have all signed up to it, and you know, it, you know, it looks like they're really going to try. That's really positive. Uh, then you come back down to earth and you think, oh my goodness, what and how are they going to do anything? And you get the British government, which has done zilch. It's taken away uh, subsidies for renewable energy. it's stopped the uh, carbon sequestration program. It stopped the Green Deal. All it's doing is, you know, going along with the Chinese and French nuclear reactor. And that's not because they're interested in climate change. That, that they they use that to say that it isn't. But they're really interested in that for sort of an easy, you know, energy supply. Um, so, at the UK perspective, um, it's not good. But uh, one caveat on that statement: um, what the UK does have, which is really good, and was set up um, by the, I think it was a Conservative government. I'm not sure, is the Climate Change Committee. So, this is um, a panel of experts. It's separate from the government um, that provides. Um, plans for what the carbon emissions of the country should be in five-year chunks into the future. Um, and the carbon budget's now set for up to 2030 going down to I think it's 57% of what it was in I can't remember now, 1990 something or other. Um, and they've been passed through so they've gone through parliaments and um, it's actually legally binding on the government to
0: do it. So, this is a standing committee. This is a non-partisan standing committee, or do you
1: know it's, how, how it works? It's, it's not a standing. It's a separate. It's a separate committee. It, it writes um, reports uh, that advise the government. They, could, they, they take the reports to the to the parliament, and the parliament approves them, and then they go into law. So the first four ones, first four five year periods, were in law before. I think this is right before the last election. So we were worried about after the election, what would happen to the fifth carbon budget which was being set for twenty thirty, um, whether that would still go ahead. And it has, and it's been through Parliament since the Tory comment. So, you know, that's a good thing. So it's not entirely bad. It's all the messaging's right, but the question is, you know, come on, how how are you going to uh, how are you going to do it?
0: But presumably getting back to an earlier statement, if enough people are showing enough concern to their MPs or, or what have you, yeah. the word will move up the food chain so yes. that uh, the politicians are aware of the fact that this is of prime interest to, the, to their Absolutely
1: that. Uh, the other issue, big issue, of course, is energy costs. And um, if people have to pay more for their energy, then they're less likely to want to um, change. So the government, if the government can subsidise renewables until they get, which they will do, to a parity or lower than parity cost with fossil fuels, then that would be a good thing.
0: Two more questions. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Um, first question, I'm going to tack back a little bit to the science and ask a, a somewhat standard question that I ask, which is, if, if I were God or an all-knowing being, and I could answer any scientific question that you would have, um, what sorts of things would you ask me? What would you be dying to know?
1: Oh, God.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, oh.
0: Um, I guess you don't get asked that very often. No. <laughs> well,
1: there's so many little things, isn't there? But I suppose you'd want to have to, you'd want to ask a big thing.
0: Well, you could ask more than one question. Go right, ahead, I'll give you, I'm very generous today, so I'll give you, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you five, ten, there's no, there's no limit, you can even ask, you can be clever and ask for an infinite number of questions. No, and so no, no I don't, you don't a, think we
1: want to be here that long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what sorts of things are, 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 are you just dying to know or intriguing you?
1: Um, I'd like to know why um, people want to be climate change deniers. What's in their psychology? I mean, obviously some people are being paid by the coal lobby says' obvious, or they've got land with coal or oil or whatever it is, they're obvious um, but there's a certain brand of um, person, and actually of scientists too, they tend to be retired geologists who um, want somehow to, uh, to deny the science, and I'd like to know why Please, God, can you tell me? <laughs> well,
0: that's not part of the deal. I just uh, <laughs> I wanted to know your response. Um, hmm. Yes, well, that that was something actually I meant to hmm. ask you and had forgotten because that that had perplexed me too. That there are people with obvious agendas, um, and then there are people who might be sufficiently skeptical based upon their own experiences in the field, and yep. you can understand yep, that, fair that, yep. that that yep. too. Yeah. But then there is this large middle ground of people who don't obviously have an agenda and who don't have sufficient knowledge of the particulars of the field, and yet they are they. Those people tend to be very uh, vehement. Yes. In their denial.
1: And there is a section of the press that sort of feeds that um, and encourages that and talks about climate scientists as sitting on fat grants and getting paid to you know tell us all lies so that they can enjoy their green lefty agenda, whatever it is, you know um but um well i mean i get i get loads of letters and emails and asking questions um some of them say you know you've got it all wrong about something or other and um i try and i always write back once and try and say look this is actually how it is and usually they don't get back some of them get back and they go on and on and on, and on. one in one in uh, i don't know 20 or something will say, Oh, thank you very much for explaining that. I didn't understand it before. I think, Yes! Oh, I, oh, no, I, I, yeah, well, I, I don't know what the success rate is. Probably, <laughs> perhaps not that high. But anyway, um, you know, so it's worth it's worth trying. Um, other people are just abusive, you know. Um, that, that's their problem. Not
0: mine. My last question concerns education. Um, and it might be related to climate science and it might not be what advice would you give to teachers and educators more broadly with respect to science and education you mentioned you had a formative influence when you were younger in school um so are we doing a good enough job in general educating our children with respect to science. How can we do a better job? What sorts of things might we be encouraging or discouraging?
1: Well, I'm not. I'm not I mean, I do a lot of education for you know university graduates. I'm not involved in school teaching. And they. Well, I'm not so asking many... you to
0: criticize, but what sorts yeah. of things do you think we need more of? This, generally speaking.
1: Um, I think uh, more understanding of what's going on in the world, and you can do that from many different aspects. You can do it from um, actually understanding the science, physical. Physics, chemistry, biology, uh, and also um, on the impacts by looking at the outside world and saying, "Look, this is—you're seeing this is happening here." Um, and I think actually they do that better now than they did when I was at school, where it was definitely all equations. I mean, I quite liked equations, but just showing children that actually it's got a real, you know, real-world angle to it, and I think that might—going um, back to the whole question about why girls don't do physics—I think that might help that agenda too, because. I think girls like to sort of feel that they can actually help um, things go along.
0: Mm. Would you have any specific advice towards a young person who is considering a career in, in climate science and environmental science? Would you have any words of wisdom that you you would like to bestow upon them?
1: I don't, I don't like giving advice. I don't,
0: um, <sighs> but that's a piece of advice right um
1: I, I would say, um I would say to them, if people offer you advice... <laughs> then uh, listen to it and weigh it up but don't be told don't be told because other people have different reasons for telling you things and I know from my own experience that if you just believe everything you're told you may go down a wrong track so by all means take all the advice, listen to it but don't necessarily go by it, do what you feel your gut instinct is right for you and you'll probably that'll be the better way to make decisions
0: Anything I haven't asked? Anything you'd like to add or we should get back to or uh, emphasize? I Perhaps don't think so. I mean,
1: you follow. could you could talk forever on atmospheric, at least poor people sitting around the outside of fall off their chairs in boredom. I, um, <laughs>
0: it. I think it's, I mean, to me, I guess the, the one thing that, that impressed itself upon me was just the sheer amount of knowledge of past events that we have that I just think is really cool and I didn't understand at all. I mean, how do we understand the climate of? Ten thousand years ago, or five thousand years ago—that's that's one of these things that I would have thought.
1: Yeah. So in our discussion, we've talked a lot about models, um, but much less so about observations. Right. And of course, they're hugely important. You can't have models are sitting in a vacuum, not relating to what's actually happening. So, the observational record going back in history, and all the data that we're getting from satellites now, and what what the atmosphere is doing all the time, and the oceans—we haven't talked about oceans. Is oh. um, <laughs> Very important.
0: And and, uh, so I keep asking more questions after telling you I'm not going to. So if you were the, in addition to signing appropriate agreements and encouraging companies to move in the direction of uh, of removing our dependence from fossil fuels and the economy and green technologies and all the rest of that. In terms of fostering research in the atmospheric sciences, what needs to be done?
1: Well, um, there's an awful lot of good stuff going on. Um, the money that going into the research councils is reducing, so there's much more choice uh, needs to be made. And this is not special pleading, but it's just to make the point that if you're a scientist trying to get research grants now, um, you have to write so many different proposals that it is probably one in seven or less. Um, you know, that's a waste of time. <laughs> it should should the whole system be different in some way or other? Right? Um, actually, what's happened as the money's got tighter, is the research councils have become far more thematic. So they've decided which things they want people to work on. They've pushed the money into those areas, and those are good areas. But what that means is that the money for the so-called blue skies research, which is just people having ideas and working on them, has been squeezed. And if we're not careful, um, You won't come up with the new ideas. You'll be working on these very good things, but you won't have the new ideas, which would then give you oh, a whole new perspective on something, because there's no work on there. So I would, I would be cautious about prescribing areas rather than letting people think.
0: Well, I think that's an area. I think blue skies. (laughs) I think we've just made an area. Okay. More funding for blue sky. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great, John. Thank you very much. This has been a pleasure.
1: Me too. Thanks
0: very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the Environment, along with separate discussions with Andy Hoffman, Charles Shepard, and Edie Witter. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For well, those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, I recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.